Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hello and welcome to the Just Sign the Check edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I'm here with Anna Shamansky. Hello. Hello. And the Huffington Post's Emily Peck. Hello. Um, the Huffington Post is your one-stop shop for all content on the subject of men wearing red shirts and blue shirts. Shorts and blue shirts. That's correct, yes. Go there for all of your red shorts and blue shirts combo um, material. Um, It's not the home of the major Washington Post investigation into um, nasty lending practices at firms run by Tim Geithner. We're going to talk about that later on. And we are also going to talk about AMLO. We're into the acronyms beginning with A this week. There's AMLO in Mexico, the president-elect in a weird North American thing. He's not going to be president for another five months, but he's the president-elect, and there's lots of um, very interesting stuff to talk about that. But first, Emily, as the in-house labor relations guru, you can tell us about AFSCME, which is the other A... um, acronym is but everyone's just saying janus because they don't know how to pronounce fsme right well i say janus oh you say i guess i'm a new york rube or something but no you say that because everyone says yeah everyone's saying janus okay janus it's janus versus fsme it went up before the supreme court i guess janus won and fsme lost correct now what is this case and why is it important Uh, This case uh, is about public sector unions. It's about a law that said um, everyone has to pay union fees if they're in a public sector union. But if you don't agree, if you politically don't agree with the union's positions, you can just pay what's called an agency fee. So you're just paying a fee for like collective bargaining that the union does on your behalf. Um, But Janice... The actual guy in Illinois um, who was an employee who was paying these agency fees didn't agree. 
He said um, he still felt like his First Amendment rights were being violated because of these agency fees, that even when they are doing collective bargaining, the unions are taking political positions. The idea being that just the simple act of collective bargaining is a kind of lefty thing to do. Well, no, not not just that. It's because um, I know I'm probably going to be in the minority here, but I actually agreed with the decision. I, I... So, okay, explain <laughs> why the First Amendment, which is like freedom of religion or something like that uh, means that you should be free to not pay your union who by the way is still representing him right yes so well partly freedom of association is also freedom from associating but but he still is part of the union they haven't he's not that. a member he you don't have to be a member but you still have to pay your you, you still had to pay your um your agency fees. He's part but, of the bargaining unit. So right. when but the, the union bargains for pay raises or better benefits, right. this guy, yes. Janice, gets it, even though he doesn't agree that he thinks the fiscal crisis in Illinois is very serious. You know, well, the fiscal serious. crisis in Illinois is very so serious. He, he and, doesn't actually want the benefits conferred by the union, but I think well, that see, he, would, he still belongs to the union even with this ruling. He just doesn't well, have he, to pay fees. He belongs fees. to the bargaining unit. He gets all the benefits yes, that the union He gets the benefits. The, the point is, when you're talking about public sector unions, trying to make a distinction between collective bargaining and political activity is impossible because the very nature of what a public sector union does is try to affect public policy. This was actually stated in the Abood decision that was overturned, that they explicitly stated that basically when you're a public sector union, what you're trying to do is to say, we want the government to spend more money on these public sector workers. We want in order to do that, that means you're probably going to have to raise taxes or engage in other fiscal policies. That's explicitly what is involved in these negotiations to make the argument that that is not political speech and that if someone doesn't support that, they should be forced to support that just in order to become a public sector worker, to me, seems like a clear violation of the First Amendment. I mean, I think state governments have the right to sort of regulate their own workplaces. And these laws were in effect in, I think, over 20 states. And it Which it was, laws are we talking about? It was fine. Um, the laws that uh, said that if you belong to a public sector union, you had to pay a, a fee. You had to... The, oh, the agency fees, Yeah, because right. some, some states you can... Workers can opt out. So I think it's 28 states opt out, 22 states like Illinois. They have mandatory fees. Um, so anyway, I think states have the right to set rules for how workplaces operate and run. Um, that's what Kagan said in the dissent. And I think Abood was like a 41-year-old ruling that the Supreme Court overturned in Janus, and it was working just fine. It wasn't necessarily working just fine, though. That's part of the reason that you have had 28 states that have passed right-to-work laws, which I don't particularly I mean, love that term. I mean, come on. No, it, it, was working, saying... it was working well, and that's why conservative groups backed by business interests wanted to overturn it to weaken the power of, of labor so they don't have to, you know, give people raises. So I would also <laughs> argue that part of the reason that people have pushed back on some union policies is because they have led to unsustainable fiscal issues in a number of states. And I also think it's important because I like Kagan, but I thought her dissent was quite weak because she was trying to make the argument that if you did away with agency fees, you you would have just like unrest in terms of labor negotiations, which 
because we've already seen that we do not have these agency fees in 28 states, and we certainly have not seen that, that argument doesn't hold a lot but of water. But what about, what, what do you say then to the teacher strikes in which happens actually, to be in the states without... So I actually think this is really interesting because one of the things I know the Times reported on this is that this has been a decision that people kind of knew was going to happen for a while. So as a result, a lot of unions have actually had to change some of their policies. They've had to actually work with their members more. They've had to reach out to their members more. They've had to prioritize spending because they know they're not just going to get these fees regardless of what they right, they can do anything. Too. So, so uh, no, but I also think this is important because in West Virginia what you had happen was you actually had the teachers union or you had the teachers themselves go beyond their union because they didn't agree with what the teachers union um, agreed to. And they went essentially directly to the legislature and to the public and ended up with a better result. So you think that the better result is when teachers are paid so little they have to go on strike to get more money to essentially feed themselves rather than have a union represent them, get the best deal for them through collective bargaining? Absolutely not. But I don't think that we have that it's that just black and white of a situation. I am not opposed to unions, but I think that unions don't have the right to demand that people pay them for political activity if people don't support that political activity. I I agree that... Which is convenient if you're a public sector union because... You're saying that by definition, all collective bargaining at a public sector union is political activity. And therefore, basically, no one who works for the public sector can be forced to make any kind of union dues. Right. If people want to grow a union, then the union needs to make it clear why it's so important. And if they can't do that, then frankly, that's a fault of the union. So the question I have, just on a much more practical level, is like, does this mean that the public sector unions in the 22 states which had this are now going to sort of become weakened to the level of the public sector unions in the 28 states which didn't have this? And how much of a difference is there between the 22 and the 28? I mean, um, one example I think Noam Scheiber had in The Times was... um, Michigan, I guess, which recently changed its laws. Basically, the the union was very good at getting voter turnout, educating its members on basically who to vote for and why. And um, in the first election since they had the, the new law and union membership dropped, guess what happened to Michigan? Guess what presidential candidate won in that state? OK, but just to be clear. It's Trump. Yeah, it's Trump. <laughs> right. But just to be clear, if you're talking about um, the teachers union in Michigan. I know a bit about this. My mom was in the union for 40 years. And so the DFT and the um, other unions have the 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 Detroit Federation of Teachers. Yeah. So it is certainly true that they have been very good at voter turnout. However, I would just like to point out that in a lot of the places where you actually had um, a lot of Trump support, these would not be the areas where those particular unions were the strongest. And the areas, if you're talking about like Wayne and Washington County, that was where you did have support turnout for Clinton. So I'm not sure if that argument is 100% valid. I think, it, I mean, this obviously will weaken public sector unions. It's but, not going to yeah. be good for the people who work in them. Right. Although, as, as I mean, Anna said, but now they can say now they have their First Amendment rights. So isn't that isn't that great for them? Well, but I think this there's also this idea that <laughs> I, I, I sometimes feel that People think that the only way that labor can have any power is through the union system and that the reason that labor doesn't have power now is simply because unions are weaker. 
And I'm not saying that those things aren't related, but I also think people sometimes fail to see that during the years when you had tremendous amount of union power, part of the reasons those unions could be powerful was specifically because of the economic environment at the time. And we because you had very labor intensive industries, because you couldn't outsource, you couldn't just automate things, because the U.S. could be very competitive, even though they had a high cost of labor. We do not have that world anymore. But we do have that world in the public sector. You know, it is labor intensive if you're teachers or, you know, any public sector workers. It, you know, you can't outsource teaching. These are to teachers, China. police, so firefighters. If you, well, I would actually so all I have these, some issues with the police union in New right, York. But, but, <laughs> but, the, but all of these like fit those criteria. Right. And I don't I think it's clear that the unions have been very good at being able to bring, I mean, to take the police union in New York as one example. I mean, it might not be serving the public in a particularly wonderful way, but it's certainly serving the police. As, as, as a labor force, they are doing quite well for themselves. Yes, and having unsustainable pension liabilities that we have in a lot of states. Like, this is an issue. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be paying public. I think we should be paying teachers quite a bit more in many states. Completely agree. I just think that I don't think that the only way that public sector workers can have better pay and more rights is to have extremely strong unions. So what's the other way? I would think to have more politicians voting to pay them well. Well, why do you think politicians were voting with these people in the first place because of the political strength of of the unions. And, a... I mean, it, just to be clear, like, there's no question that these unions have um, helped the most vulnerable workers in the country. 55% of public sector union workers are women. Um, there's no question that public sector union membership has, the workers have lower wage gaps. It's been a real step up to the middle class for these people. Like, it's one of the it's one of the areas where there's basically no racial wage gap. Exactly. You also have the maybe as a theoretical exercise that this this ruling is okay, but in practice, it's damaging very vulnerable workers at a time when labor is at a clear disadvantage. Even though unemployment is at like historic lows, wages aren't moving, and it's in part because of rulings like this. So I would, <laughs> I just like to say that. One, although I do think what happens in the real world is important, that doesn't mean we can just pass unconstitutional laws because we like the outcome. I mean, the constitutionality is a 5-4 decision. It's not. that, And and the law has been around for decades. It's not like we just passed any unconstitutional law. Okay, but like there have we have a history of having laws. And I would also like to point out that Abood was a bit of an anomaly. And if you read the actual language in Abood, you can tell that the judges themselves were a little squeamish about it. So. I'm not saying that I think that labor is in a great place right now. I'm just saying that I, one, don't think it justifies having something that I think is clearly unconstitutional. And B, I don't think that the only way that labor can have power is through unions. And also for going to the idea of saying that the only way that Democrats can get elected is by having extremely powerful unions. And I think you go back to the argument of you're essentially telling people that, look, I'm a Democrat, but I don't think people should be forced to have to give to Democratic lobbying groups. That's problematic. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's stay on this question of 
labor versus capital and <laughs> and the and the little working guy versus the money bags who are funding all manner of republicans even though they might also be employing mr tim geithner who we all thought was a democrat um after leaving public service he wound up this is the former sec, uh, former treasury secretary of course and former president of the of the new york fed um he decided he was going to cash in as many of these people do and he disappears off to this private equity firm called warburg pincus which everyone sort of says okay fine whatever and now warburg pincus turns out to be evil <laughs> to, to nice <laughs> slightly oversimplified <laughs> Well, they, um, they, they own this Mariner Finance, right? And and they bought it for 200 and some million dollars a few years ago, and they have been growing it aggressively since then. And what Mariner Finance does is something called installment loans, which is basically a millimeter less evil than payday loans, but only just a millimeter. And in some ways, they're worse because they last much longer and they tend to be much larger in terms of absolute And they size. come right to your house. Like they come looking for you. They send you a check in the mail, right? Okay. And so this is the particularly evil thing that Mariner <laughs> Finance does is they literally send people checks in the mail, which I is an unbelievable, it's, it's what they consider to be a marketing expense. And it's amazing that they'll just like, Take a bunch of like one thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar checks, put them in the mail, pop them in the mail, and then this and then all you need to do is cash that check and then suddenly you're locked into a thirty three percent interest rate installment loan. It's crazy. Just sign the check. Just sign the check. Yeah, and the, the lead anecdote was a guy, he, he gets a check in the mail, looks at it, sees that it's 33% interest rate, says, oh, that's I'm never going to do that. But then, of course, you know, a little while later, car breaks down, can't afford to fix it, needs the car, signs the check, and blah, blah, blah is now in litigation. Oh, yeah. So, so in this Washington Post piece, there was a bunch of statistics which are mildly horrifying or extremely horrifying, including the fact that there are half a million customers now of Mariner Finance, which is a lot of people. Um, and also that what happens is that the minute you go into default on these loans, which many people do because obviously, um, they're very friendly. You know, they, do. they phone you up and they say, hey, what you need is another loan to make the interest payment on the loan which you couldn't afford to pay. It's it's just so bad. Okay, Anna, defend Anna's the evil capitalist. I actually will somewhat defend it. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I do think that this is a part of the loan industry that should be very highly regulated. There should be a tremendous amount of oversight because the opportunities for abuse are, are so clear. Completely agree with that. And many states do have laws about how many times you can roll over these types of loans. And there are obviously laws about the interest rates you can charge. Mariner Finance does not operate in every state for precisely this reason. It only operates in the states with the lax usury laws, so they can go ahead and just I'm not sure probably the same states with the bad labor laws. I'm actually not I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but it could be. My my biggest point is when you're talking about, whether you're talking about payday lending or you're talking about these installment loans, it's, I think, a lot more complicated than sometimes people make it out to be because the issue is if you have a segment of the population who either cannot or does not want to access credit through the normal banking system, often because they cannot, because of either very poor credit histories or a 
no credit history. And you often still have people who want loans. And so you in order to give those loans, you need to charge very high rates of interest because of both the risk and because it's almost certainly going to cost more to recoup the money. But these are not demand-driven loans. These loans are sold. They're not bought. This is the whole point about sending um, unrequested checks in the mail to people. That's not like, um, you know people knocking down your door saying, I need a loan, so, that's going out and selling it aggressively well, to people who don't need it and probably could find a better offer and a better product somewhere else. So just to be clear, I'm not saying that I agree with the mailing out checks to people. It does seem like that is a practice that probably shouldn't be allowed. I, I will completely agree with you on that. But I think that the idea that the because even the people that they spoke with in the article, the people that they spoke with in the article did not state that they didn't know what they were doing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have protections in place for people. Completely agree with that. But I also think it's important that the average Mariner finance customer makes $50,000 a year, is about 50 years old, and has been living in their home for about 10 years. So you're not necessarily talking about people who are grossly impoverished. And you will always have a segment of the population who has a hard time accessing the traditional finance system that does need loans. And if you just say, well, you know what? We're just going to outlaw all of this. Well, yeah, but then you, you can't charge them such high interest You have to charge rates, them such high interest but rates. But such high interest rates that they can't pay and, the and, loan and, and, back. Anna, you're, is, you're, that's yeah, an absurd and, calculation. It's, it's, but most of the people also, do pay the loan also back. Also, this company charge when they charge the, 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 the customer their attorney's fees. I mean, it's just so usurious. It's so awful. You can't, so let's, you can't charge... So let's be clear about this idea that they have to charge these high interest <laughs> rates. Um, as, as someone who used to work at a credit union who dealt with people who are much poorer than the customers of Mariner Financial. This is just not true. Um, If you have a good relationship with a local community, you can make loans at much lower interest rates than these and still make money. There is absolutely no reason why someone earning $50,000 a year should have to pay a 33% interest rate plus all of these extra penalties, plus be encouraged to take out extra loans to make their interest payments, plus all of the compounding fees and the legal fees and all the rest of it. This is just a way of maximizing profits for the lender. It is not a way of saying, well, we have an 8% default rate, therefore we need to charge 33% interest. Even I, I mean, I'm not very good at sums, but even I can see that 33 is a lot higher than 8. Yes, but when you're, when, look, so one, I think I know that you, the idea of like, oh, well, you know, there are all these other wonderful options that people have, but and I, I think we should. I'm I'm all for. There's the mafia. They could but this is the point. Mafia, if you start thing. to outlaw a lot of regulated businesses and then you no, say. I'm saying we should regulate these regulated businesses. I think businesses we should and, regulate them. And, and it's very clear that the regulators are asleep at the switch on this. I one. disagree. They've been they lowered the rates of what they could charge. And so the company lowered the rates of what they were charging in interest. Oh, wait. I think, so they managed to lower the, their rates, even though they had to charge their higher rates before a minute ago because of the credit worthiness of the customers. They are certainly going to have relatively to charge relatively high rates. Now, I don't know the numbers of their loan portfolio to know. My guess is I do know, though, that these industries are very, very competitive and the margins are pretty slim. So then but they don't compete on price. They compete on convenience because yes, often, exactly it. often what happens is that, you know, 
if you if you're in one of these cash trap situations, you're working like two or three jobs, you don't have the ability to, you know, take out an hour from your day to go down to a local like friendly lender and and get decent terms and you just get one of these checks in the mail it's it's much more convenient it's much easier and you wind up taking that instead um partly because you know everyone in america is part is part of being american is that everyone believes they're going to be in a much better place in a few months time even though they never are and it's a way of penalizing um just like hope and penalizing the inability to shop around for a better deal if the industry were better regulated then i think there are ways of ensuring that people get the best credit products out there which are at which are available to them rather than the current situation which mariner financial is playing in which is do it all on an aggressive sales model an aggressive sales model is just not something which i want to see in the lending business so i will certainly agree that there were a number of practices that were suggested that this company engages in that I think are very questionable. And I think that those are the things that regulators and some of them even look at their violations of current regulations that should be looked into completely agree with. And I agree with you that I think I wish we had a better options for a lot of people who don't have the certain types of credit histories. However, I do think we do. We well, do have better we, options. That's no, if it's someone that that is easy to say when one is not in that situation, but the, we actually in this country do not have a excellent system for giving credit to people who have very poor credit scores. No, no, we don't have an excellent system, but we have a system, and there are better options. I mean, we're going to have Massa Radran coming on at some point later this year, inshallah, um, and we can talk much more about that kind of business, and you know. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had postal banking and that and that kind of thing then? But just right now in the world, you know, there are better options. There are better online options. And a lot of the reason why people wind up with Mariner is simply ignorance. And sure, we can all wish that the system was was better still, but I don't think that's any excuse for what Mariner is doing. Can we can we talk briefly? for um about Tim Geithner's involvement. Let's, yes, yes, because can the, we? The Washington Post made it seem shocking and some kind of like turn in his character that he would support such a company, but I feel like that's not a that's a misreading of Geithner's role in the cleanup after the crisis. It seemed to me that he was often on the lender's side and the bank side against he, the little he guy. He was on the bank side, but he was also very much in, in he was on the, the let's CFPB. not let the capitalist system in America collapse side I would argue yeah, but like um in terms of like finding solutions for the mortgage crisis a lot of people wanted to do for example like principal reduction to ease borrowers pain and Geithner wasn't about to do anything radical like that like he was pretty conservative and doesn't really it didn't really surprise me that he'd be involved in the question like the, the inquest interesting question for me is like he's the guy at Warbo Pinkers who everyone's heard of he's not one of the two co-CEOs he's not a founder mm -hmm. his relationship if any with this particular company Mariner Finance is unknown mm -hmm. um and so it's you know it's easy to he has this like grand sounding title of president which no one really knows what it means um and whether he has you know operational responsibility for this company is is very very unclear and it's sad to me that um between them, Geithner and Warburg decided that they 
didn't want to talk to the Washington Post about this, that no one really except for the general counsel replied in writing to questions, but there was no actual conversation. And I feel like this was a missed opportunity for him, right, to be able to just be honest. I feel that one of the problems of politicians going into the private sector is they find themselves very constrained about saying what they think about things. I don't know. I, I don't we don't know how involved he is in this um but i and i and it's certainly true that he did a lot of good for lenders during the financial crisis and probably more good for lenders needed for borrowers and so in that sense it's maybe not surprising um but i'm not necessarily blaming him personally for what mariner finance is doing yeah i'm I mean, not saying i blame him or don't blame him i'm just not surprised by it like i i just felt like the washington post story um and you should all go read it uh, about this thing was sort of shocking in its specifics, but the fact that he was involved and they sort of painted him like a hypocrite or something. Like, it's pretty, I mean, his I, I public think, statements, so. it, it definitely it definitely cuts against various public statements mm. that he made. Yeah, I would, but not his actions, you know? Yeah, I mean, one, I, I do agree that I think he, I don't know if this matters or not, but he, because of his role, which I think is primarily investor relations more than anything else, I would imagine, mm-hmm. he's probably not very involved in the day-to-day investments. But even having said that, the quote that the article pulled from him, where he was talking about the opaque agreements, mortgage agreements that people signed on to, I would argue are a bit different than what's at issue here, just because they're, none of the people they spoke with seemed to not know what they were doing, just, just to make that clear. So I, I would argue that that's not necessarily an instance of hypocrisy. So this is a scam that's clear in its aims as opposed to subprime mortgage think, lending. I, I, just, I just think that we're I, I just think there is a tendency to look at this issue in a very black and white way. And I think it is more complicated than that. That is all I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a part of the industry that I think is fantastic or that doesn't often lead to really bad practices. I just think that it is oversimplified. And, and and just to be clear, I think, I mean, in general, I think that providing credit to the poor is an important service that companies can and should do. Like, no one is arguing that. But when you find an instance of a company which is doing it in an evil and bad manner, you should be perfectly happy and willing to say, here's a company doing it in an evil and bad manner, rather than saying, oh, it's complicated every time. Because no. I think I think in this in this particular situation, it's not complicated. They are doing it in an evil and bad manner. I think it's perfectly fine if you want to point out specific practices and say that these are specific practices that should be outlawed or to say that I think they're violating certain current regulations. I think it's fine to say there should be an investigation. And if the investigation finds that they are, they should find them and Warper Pinker should lose money on their investment because they should have done better due diligence. But I don't think that it, investing in, a, in this type of company is inherently an evil activity. No one's saying it's inherently evil. We're just saying this company is evil. <laughs> you can't mail people checks like that. That's not right. It's wrong. It's wrong. I don't agree with mailing the checks. <laughs> Good. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's let's talk about AMLO. 
Because I feel like Oof. the one thing we haven't really talked about yet is this whole question of like the little guy versus like the big corporate interests. Yes. Oh wait, that's been the entire. Podcast. We have a theme. We have a theme. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have we have the big corporate interests in Mexico as represented by the PRI, the party which has been in power for what like eighty five percent of Mexico's history, something like that, and is still in power under Enrique Peña Nieto, who is going to remain president for the next five months with his spectacularly good hair that he has. <laughs> it's true. Um, but has been very, has suffered a massive defeat at the polls at the hands of good old AMLO, who seems to be, I don't know how to put it, a kind of crosser between Bernie Sanders and Jerry Brown and Alan Garcia and Lula and any other kind of like aging leftist you care to mention. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, and, and we have seen this in elections in many, many other countries. This kind of kick the fuckers out attitude happened in France, even. It just, they happened to elect someone more centrist and younger rather than leftist and older. But is there anything bad here? I think so. I think that I, <laughs> I think it's a, a mixed bag. So I, I do think that Did this you is. say his full name? Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. It's such a great name. It is a good name. Uh, so I do think that part of the reason you had such a landslide election, it's not only the presidential election, but it's also um, both houses of Congress, a lot of governorships, the mayor in Mexico City. So he is going to be one of the most powerful presidents in a long time. And on the one hand, it is certainly true that Mexico has a tremendous amount of inequality. A lot of people live either in poverty or near the poverty line. And Mexico also spends a much lower percentage of GDP on, on like social spending than most other OECD countries. So they certainly have room to expand that and should. And that was actually one of the things the previous or still current administration was doing. So I think it's fair to say that spending more on education and job training and healthcare makes a reasonable amount of sense. However, <laughs> there's also the problem of how it's going to be paid for. There's also the problem that AMLO has this messianic kind of tendency that is troubling. It's the one area I would say he is somewhat like Trump in that he has a tendency to say, only I can solve corruption. Only I speak for the people. And he is extremely thin-skinned. He has a history of attacking other institutions, the media, the judiciary, so I do think that this could go in many different directions. Well, it does I mean, seem a little troubling, he, he, authoritarian leanings. A little bit that way. But, you know, on there. the other hand, when he complains that the entire pre-edifice is deeply corrupt, he's 100% right about that. Like, <laughs> right. And I'm, But I just would – I completely agree. But I – give a few years and I wonder if you could say the exact same thing about his party. Well, There's I mean, a so, tremendous amount of corruption. I mean, he doesn't have much of a track record. But right? this is what we well, saw with, with Lula in Brazil, right? He came in on a very similar platform and actually achieved a huge amount of progress in terms of working for the poor. And one of AMLO's core, the, the core of AMLO's platform is that, listen, I care about all Mexicans. I care about the rich. I care about the middle classes. But the people I care about the most are the poor. And that focus on the poor is very similar to, to to Lula's focus in Brazil. And 
Lula ran up against corruption, much like AMLO did, and Lula turned out to be corrupt. And the fact that Lula turned out to be corrupt and is now in jail doesn't actually alter the fact that he helped the poor and his corruption was probably less bad than the corruption that went before. So if AMLO does turn out to be corrupt, that would be bad, but it would still be an improvement on what we've had so far. You know, similarly on the drug war, which is, of course, like the number one issue in Mexico right now, you know, it's the the, the current um, way of dealing with it, which is just like sending out a whole bunch of paramilitaries who, you know, police and army types who are mostly in bed with the narcos anyway, clearly isn't working. It's time to try something else. Yeah. And I, I, I would agree that. A lot of these leaders we've had, whether talking about Luva or Rafael Correa or Eva Morales, it is certainly true that if you look, a lot of them have done things to decrease poverty, to increase health spending. Uh, However, sometimes they also can get into problems that then result in, as in the case of Brazil, one of the largest recessions they've had. And although it's complicated about the causes of the recession – you you want someone who I think is does have a focus on increasing social spending, on altering the tax code, on reinvigorating business, but has an interest both in increasing competition, make increasing investment, as well as helping the poor. Right, and I think if I, you only do one, you tend to have a fairly predictable result. Why well, I, I don't think it's. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think, you know, I, I mean, I know that your agenda is sort of pro-business and we want more business and we want more capitalism. And that's clearly not the agenda of AMLO, you know, who who's, makes no bones about the fact that he's not a big fan of capitalism and he really wants to just care. He really cares about um, looking after the poor and he doesn't really care about GDP growth figures nearly as much. And, you know, it could well be that the... Mexican peso will weaken as a result or the Mexican stock market will go down or the spreads on Mexican debt will widen and the interest expenses will go up. And, you know, in terms of the quantitative like market indicators that people use to judge the health of a country will make it look like it's deteriorating. And if that's the case, while, you know, the poor are coming out of poverty and the drug war is abating, I'll take that, you know, bargain any day of the week. So the idea that he is going to be have an effective solution for the drug war, despite the fact that he has said essentially nothing, I, I think is a little optimistic. Right. And I'm a little confused about how you're paying for all of these things if you don't have tax revenues. This is one of the things that I think is very unfortunate that the PRI became or was or probably always has been so corrupt is that a lot of the form reforms they were pushing through were actually helping people because one of the biggest problems you have in Mexico is informality in the labor sector. It's more than half of the population has informal labor arrangements. And this is something that the previous government was really working on pushing back on because if you don't bring people into the official labor sector, they don't have the ability to get the different benefits that they're entitled to. And it leads to more corruption. Now, if you end up in a system where you're creating incredibly strict labor laws, 
where you're having sub-disease and price controls, you're making it very hard for business to come in, you are not going to have an increase in people moving into the formal labor sector. Almost certainly you're going to have the opposite. But do we know what exactly he's proposing so far? Is he proposing the things that you just talked about? Or is he just proposing, you know, He, he doesn't have the benefits. world's most just doesn't seem I've, I don't have detailed so policy I, I just proposals. Don't, it's like when Trump says he's going to drain the swamp. It's like kind of a meaningless... That's when I was reading up, up on this guy. It just seems like he said a lot of. I mean, I think, stuff. I think, I think. Just so Anna, I Anna has it right in the 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 big picture is that if you want to bring the Mexican population under the umbrella of a welfare state, then you need to formalize a lot of the work that they're doing that's currently informal. And Mexico has one of the narrowest tax bases in the Western world. And it's definitely a good idea to broaden that tax base a bit, even if you're only paying a small amount in taxes, once you become part of the formal economy, and you can start claiming benefits. That's, that's all a really good idea. Um, I would, you know, and it would also reduce the normal way that Mexican governments pay for things, which is um, basically just by stealing money from the oil company. And, and, you know, there's a huge amount of corruption involved in that. So if you bring it onto income taxes, you know, even if the poor don't pay very much in terms of income taxes, if they're part of the system, that's a good thing. We don't know what AMLO is going to do in terms of that kind of technocratic reform. But, you know, Peru managed it. And Peru managed it under Alan Garcia, who's not that dissimilar from AMLO in some ways. So it can be done. One other thing that was disturbing to learn was that um, the Mexican election, there was a lot of Facebook fake news manipulation going on there. And so I, I start wondering, like, the empty rhetoric from the sky, his populist appeal, plus the Facebook chicanery and you wonder i mean is this just another country falling prey to the same old kind of stuff that i mean I, I i do think we're just having an anti-establishment you know in, an, a period of anti-establishment feelings in general globally and i do think a lot of mexicans have a lot of reason to be very angry yeah <laughs> so sure. i it, it's I, I don't think it's unreasonable but, that they pushed back on the parties that have been ruling the country forever and it's not it's not clear be, that the fake news was pro amlo right i, I don't know I mean, the sad yeah. part seems to be there's all this anti-establishment feeling, but the people that get elected under this this wave of emotion are even worse. Oh, like, I, that I, is just this. I, I feel like it gets ignored. I mean, it's and like one very of obvious, and one of the worst just... statistics out of this election campaign was that 110 candidates in Mexico for various different offices were assassinated yeah, I mean, during the yeah. campaign. Like, you don't run unless you are in some sense acceptable to the drug lords. And if the if you still run while being unacceptable to the drug lords, they will walk up behind you and put a bullet in your head. So there's a lot of things which have broken in Mexico, and you cannot for a minute realistically expect one septuagenarian to fix it. And so de facto, if you won an election in Mexico, you're probably corrupt because otherwise you wouldn't have gotten that far. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. I mean, like... I, uh, <laughs> but no that, one's that, That's what I would say. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's probably. 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 Um, I think we should have a numbers round. Um, I'm going to start because I feel like after all of this labor versus capital um, heaviness, I need a lighter number. And my number is $2,700. And specifically, it's a $2,700 
phone bill. Um, <laughs> so do you guys know about the Polish stork? There was this um, group of ornithologists in Poland who decided that they wanted to measure stork mi migration. And so they put a tiny little tracker on the back of a stork and let it fly around the world as storks are prone to do. And the stork made its way and it had a little GSM chip in it on, on its back and it would ping every, you know, few hours and then you could track where it was. And it worked fine until the stork reached South Sudan when an enterprising chap or chap S in um, South Sudan found this little GSM chip on the back of the stork and said, ooh, a GSM chip, takes the GSM chip out of the stork and puts it into their phone and runs up a $2,700 phone bill. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Endorse. Good one. That's hard to beat. You you can go. Yeah, my... <laughs> It's not great. Yeah. Uh, so mine is uh, $1,205. And as of, I think, last week, that was the price of a barrel of white cheddar. So a barrel of cheddar. Yes, a does, barrel does, of cheddar. Does cheddar come in? I knew it came in truckles. I didn't realize it comes in. It does. Is, is it is a barrel like a bigger truckle? I think it might be. Yeah, <laughs> my my white cheddar knowledge is limited. I'll, I'll I'll grant you. So yeah, so this is the the lowest uh, price since like two thousand and nine, and part of it has to do with all of the uh, ridiculous tariffs that Trump has initiated, and now we're having retaliatory tariffs, including from Mexico, who has been one of our bigger markets for cheese. In the United States. And we had ha already had a bit of an overproduction of dairy. So prices had already been low. And now one of the biggest markets is going to have like 25% tariffs on dairy. So the Mexicans are buying less cheddar. And so we have a supply glut of all of the cheddar, which would otherwise have gone to Mexico. And so that just means more queso for the Americans. <laughs> Well, I mean, actually, they're talking about they may just have to give it away. I'll take it. Yeah, because they're like, or it's going to go bad. <laughs> I mean, like you, you just it's a take cheese this, emergency. You, you take these so these these barrels of cheddar, and then you wind up inadvertently, but probably pleasantly, aging them. I feel like aged cheddar is always better. A barrel of cheddar in every house. What <laughs> exactly. a great campaign slogan. I used to grow up with a truckle of cheddar in my house, and we would just slice off a little bit whenever we needed some cheese. It was it was a happy childhood. Sounds idyllic. Um, Emily, do you have a number? Yeah, it's 64%. Uh, that's the percentage of people in this morning consult survey. Um, the birth rate is declining and, and, and at a below replacement level in the United States. So a morning consult wanted to find out why people aren't having kids. So they asked. And 64% said they're going to have fewer kids than they wanted or um, fewer than is ideal because of the high cost of child care, 64%. And 46% um, were worried about the economy, 44% said they can't afford a kid, basically a lot of financial reasons in the, in the it country. Is is like, you know, carbon footprint on the list at all? Yeah, that was on the list too. <laughs> Whatever. But well, well, yeah, there's this whole like weird strain of philosophy which says that it's like that having kids is one of the worst ethically oh, worse no. things you can do. I think it was more like um, worried that world was going to collapse because global warming kind of a thing. Like, oh, generally. Rather than like the fact that kids are just like the the most carbon intensive thing you can possibly do. <laughs> I don't do. think that was the thing. I doubt it. I think, I think it you was just like, like take a number of like fewer plane flights and like offset the kid carbon yeah, 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 yeah. You can take yeah. as many, you can take as many planes as you, as you like. If you don't have kids, that's just, you know, Kids dwarf. I've actually else. never even heard that argument before. Don't have kids because they're a strain on the environment. That I didn't. 
I didn't realize that, Felix. Especially in America. American kids have the <laughs> biggest carbon footprint of all. Because you're driving them around to like soccer, soccer stuff. And then you know what else, You know what the kids lesson. wind up doing? Because they have kids. And it just, it, you know, it goes on it forever. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> awful. Let's end this now. End it. Stop, stop, having, <laughs> stop, stop having children. Stop breeding slate money, listeners. It's, you know, you're destroying the environment by doing so. Or do keep on breeding because that way you can, you know, We'll have generations of people listening to Slate Money. This will, this show will last for centuries. Um, that's it, though, for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Are we going to do a Slate Plus thing about Greenlight? Yes. Okay. We're going to talk about David Einhorn because David Einhorn, um, people don't like him. Yay. Uh, if you listen to Slate Plus, then listen to that. Otherwise, thank you for listening to us here. Keep the emails coming to slate money at slate.com many thanks to june thomas and max jacobs for throwing this show together in such an inimitable manner and we will talk to you oh wait i can plug next week we are going to talk to you next week and we are going to be talking about among other things universal basic income because we have annie lowry booked which is going to